Our scripture reading this morning is from the Gospel of Matthew, the sixth chapter, beginning in the fifth verse. Let's give careful attention to the public reading of God's word as it's found in Matthew chapter six, beginning in verse five. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like the pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them. For your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us. From the evil one. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. May the Lord bless the reading and preaching of His Word to each of our hearts this morning. Let's pray. Father, we uh, pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts that we might see wonderful things in your word this morning, that we might understand with greater clarity what your vision is for heaven and earth, and that we might be encouraged in our faith to continue to persevere toward that heavenly city. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Be seated, please. Well, have you ever been uh, watching... TV, maybe it's your favorite show, who knows? And uh, then comes across the screen, uh, we interrupt this program for a special announcement. Uh, Well, we interrupt our series on the um, seven I am statements. And uh, that's for a special two-part sermon on the Advent. I've been reading a book over the last couple of months slowly by a friend of mine. His name is Mike Heiser. And uh, it's just given me so many things to think about. Uh, It's really been a very stimulating book to read. And it's got me pondering, among other things, Advent. And since it's the second Sunday in Advent, and since, Lord willing, I'll be here next week, I thought I would preach a sermon uh, on Advent. And as I was thinking about it, I realized that you probably didn't have the patience to hear the whole sermon in one sitting. So uh, I'm actually going to just preach one sermon, but uh, you've got to come back next week for the second half. Uh, In in about the year 1100 AD, there was a fellow named Anselm. He was a theologian of the church, and he wrote a book in Latin, as was customary for the day, and the title in Latin was Cur Deus Homo. Cur, why? Deus, God, homo, man. Uh, Why did God become A man. Now, Anselm was answering that question 
in a, narrow, in a very narrow way, he was really dealing with the doctrine of the atonement. Well, I really want to raise that question again that Anselm raised so many hundreds of years ago. But I have a much broader uh, concern. Uh, I really want to be looking not just at the atonement in a limited sense, but in the grandest sense from the perspective of the whole Bible. So I'm not sure what my text is. In a narrow sense, my text is just one line from the Lord's Prayer. As in heaven, so on earth. Now, traditionally in English, we pray, uh, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That reverses the order of the Greek text. The Greek text does say, as in heaven, with heaven taking the lead, as in heaven, so on earth. I really just want us to come to understand why Jesus taught us to pray that. But in doing so, I think we're going to come away with an understanding of the whole Bible. That one line can be viewed as a window on the message of the whole Bible. That one line can be viewed as an answer to the question, Cur Deus Homo? Why did God become man? Answer, as in heaven, so on earth. Or to anticipate where we're going, this I think is the um, origin of the expression, if you want something done right, you have to do it yourself. And that's why God became man. So, a little bit of an unconventional sermon, stretching over two weeks, kind of doing what we tell our students not to do. Don't take a text and use it as a springboard to go running all over the Bible. But since I'm the professor, I'm allowed to break the rules on occasion. And I think you like me well enough that you'll forgive me for straying from a proper Presbyterian sermon. I want to make a series of points. They're not random. There will be a flow to them, but it's just going to be like point one, point two, point three, and we're going to get about half of them this week, and then we're going to get about half of them next week. Here's my first point. Pretty simple. There are two realms. As in heaven, so on earth. There is the realm of heaven. This is the realm of the invisible. We've sung about this. We've prayed about it already this morning. This is the realm of God. That's why Jesus starts in the prayer to say, Pray, our Father who is in heaven. Psalm 115, 3, Our God is in heaven. He does whatever pleases Him. Now, you can never say everything all the time, especially about God, because after all, God is omnipresent, which means God is everywhere. So God is everywhere, but there is a special sense in which God is in heaven. Our Father, Jesus didn't say pray, our Father who is everywhere. 
but our Father who is in heaven. There are two realms, the realm of heaven and the realm of earth. This is the visible realm. This is the realm of humanity. Ecclesiastes 5.2 Do not be quick with your mouth. Do not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. God is in heaven and you are on earth, so let your words be few. Psalm 115, once again, this time from verse 16. The highest heavens belong to the Lord, but the earth He has given to mankind. This is not difficult. We just don't think in these terms very often. And as a matter of fact, if we're honest, most of us think and live and move only with a view to one realm, the earthly realm. We in our culture have drunk so deeply at the well of naturalism, materialism. The only thing that exists is the material. If I can't measure it, if I can't see it under a microscope, it doesn't exist. We live as if there is only one realm, the realm of the earth. Jesus taught us to pray, and in teaching us to pray, As in heaven, so on earth, he's reminding us that there are two realms. There's the invisible realm, the realm of God, and there's the visible realm, the realm of humanity. Number two, God is not alone in the heavenly realm. Turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 89. And we'll just pick up in verse 5. It's probably a psalm that you have read before, you have sung before. Let's just slow down and think about a few of the implications of it. Notice in verse 5, starting in verse 5, The heavens praise your wonders, Lord, your faithfulness too, in the assembly of the holy ones. For who in the skies above can compare with the Lord, who is like the Lord among the heavenly beings? In the council of the holy ones, God is greatly feared. He is more awesome than all who surround him. Who is like you, O Lord Almighty? You, Lord, are mighty, and your faithfulness surrounds you. Notice that in heaven, God is not alone. Sometimes I think we just imagine God, if we think of God in heaven, he's just kind of, it's ethereal, we don't have a very concrete picture, but like, God's there. But notice that God is surrounded by heavenly beings. And that repeatedly, verse 5, he's in the assembly of the holy ones. Verse 6, he's among the heavenly beings. Uh, Verse 7, he's in the council of the holy ones. Verse 7, all who surround him. When we think of the heavenly realm, we have to think that it's the realm of God, but God is not alone. In the heavenly realm, God is surrounded by these heavenly beings that go by various names. Uh, We could call them angels. We could call them heavenly beings. We could call them the holy ones. He is surrounded by a, a multitude of angelic beings in heaven. But did you also notice that in the heavenly realm, God is incomparably supreme? For who in the skies above can compare with the Lord? That's a rhetorical question. 
A rhetorical question is one, the answer to which is obvious. It's an obvious yes, it's an obvious no. Here it's an obvious no one. Who is like the Lord among the heavenly beings? Answer, no one. Just a little note here in terms of translation. I'm using the NIV and it uses heavenly beings here. Uh, Other translations might use something else. If we were to translate the Hebrew woodenly, it would say sons of God. These heavenly beings are called sons of God. Hold on to that. That means that God is in heaven surrounded by his heavenly family. Have you ever stopped to think about it before? God has a heavenly family, the sons of God. And the phrase sons of God with regard to the angelic host occurs elsewhere in the Bible. We're just singling it out here in this text. So who is like the Lord among the sons of God, his heavenly family? In the council of the holy ones, God is greatly feared. God fears no one in the heavenly realm. But the entire heavenly realm stands in fear of God because he is incomparably supreme. He is more awesome than all who surround him. Because after all, they are awesome, aren't they? We'll see in a moment how Isaiah responded when he saw and encountered one of these heavenly beings. But as awesome as they are, God is more awesome. Who is like you, Lord God Almighty? And so, Jesus teaches us to pray, as in heaven, so on earth. There are two realms, the realm of heaven, God, invisible, the realm of earth, Uh, visible humanity, and God is not alone in heaven. He is surrounded by heavenly beings, but he is incomparably supreme in that heavenly realm. Number three, God rules in heaven through these heavenly beings. Now, theologically, we distinguish between God's immediate and immediate action. Now, we usually use the word immediate for time, right? Some things just don't happen immediately, like right away. But immediate and immediate also have another sense in theology. Mediate means through a mediator. Im, not, mediate, no mediator. For example, God heals, Most of the time, God heals immediately. What's that mean? God heals through pills, surgery, counseling. God heals through the agency of other people. God can heal immediately, yes, without any agency. But that's not the way God chooses to work ordinarily. He doesn't have to use mediators But that's the way God chooses to work. That's true in heaven. In heaven, God exercises his rule immediately. That is, through these angelic beings, and in particular, through... Did you remember that language, council? There's a heavenly council. It's kind of like God's cabinet of angelic beings through whom God rules in heaven. I'm only going to take the time to illustrate this for you from two texts. 
1 Kings 22, 19. 1 Kings 22, and uh, beginning in verse 19. The context is, God wants Ahab, boo Ahab, bad king. God wants Ahab to go to his death. So, I mean, God could have done it immediately. I mean, yeah, immediately, right? He could have just zapped Ahab with something and he killed over, but that's not the way God typically works. So notice there's this prophet Micaiah, and Micaiah says, uh, Therefore, hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on the throne with all the multitudes of heaven standing around him on his right and his left. Here there is a window, a window from the visible human realm up into the invisible earthly realm. And Micaiah gets to see what's going on in the heavenly realm. And he sees God on his throne and he's what, all by himself? No, he's surrounded by a multitude. And the Lord said... Who will entice Ahab into attacking Ramoth Gilead and going to his death there? Now notice what God is doing. God's asking the divine counsel for advice. Like, I thought God knew everything. Well, he does. But how does God typically act? He typically acts through creatures that he has made. And here he is, he's asking advice of his heavenly counsel. Now, one suggested this, and another suggested that, and the implication is God said, those are not very good ideas. Because finally a spirit came forward, stood before the Lord and said, I will entice him. Well, the Lord's interested in this, and he says, by what means? I will go out and be a deceiving spirit in the mouths of all his prophets, he said, Now, I'm going to leave that for your new pastor to handle. (laughs) Maybe you can ask him that. Maybe that could be like his first sermon. I'm not saying anything more about it. But notice what God says. Great idea. That'll work. God says you will succeed in in enticing him. Go and do it. So now the Lord has put a deceiving spirit in the mouths of all the prophets. Beautiful picture, isn't it? God is not alone in heaven. He's surrounded by heavenly beings. He has a special divine counsel. God works. He rules through the agency. He asks them for their opinion. He gets advice from them. He lets them execute his will. He doesn't doesn't need anything. But he's free to choose to do whatever he wants. That's what we said in in Psalm 150. 15, right? Our God is in heaven. He does what he pleases. And one thing that he pleases to do is act through the agency of his heavenly family. Well, the other passage is one that is known to us. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 6. I already alluded to it. Beginning in verse 1, in the year that King Uzziah died, I, Isaiah, what's he say? I saw the Lord like Micaiah. I had an experience like that. I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne. The train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were the seraphim. 
Hebrew saraf, to burn. These were burning, fiery creatures. Each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces. With two they covered their feet. And with two they were flying. And they were calling out to one another, we could say repeatedly, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorpost and the threshold shook and the temple was filled with smoke. And what was Isaiah's response? Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined. For I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim, Saraf, burning. Then one of the burning sons of God flew to me with a live coal in his hand. Interesting. Must have been some kind of burning creature if the burning creature can hold a burning coal, which he had uh, taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. So this is, Isaiah is seeing all of this, but now notice what he hears. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? God, again, getting advice from his heavenly angelic family. Okay, I've got a job to do down there. Which one of you are going to go do it for me? What happens? And I said, here am I, send me. Isaiah is like a little kid at Disney. He's like jumping up and down, volunteering. God's not asking him if he'll go. God says, who will go for us, the divine family? And Isaiah, because he's privy to this conversation, he is so overwhelmed by everything he has seen. He's thirdly, he is just volunteering out of his skin to go for God. Now, I'm not interested in anything more in this particular text other than to say it gives us, albeit indirectly, a window into heaven. And like the Micaiah text, when we look into the invisible realm, we see God on a throne, but he's not alone. He is surrounded by an angelic family. He is surrounded by his divine counsel through whom he exercises his rule. Number four, God rules over the earth through human beings. See, we on earth are the analog to the angelic host in heaven. Let's go back to that very familiar passage in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26. Sixth day of creation, you always save the best for last. God said, let us make mankind in our image. Interesting. Let us. In all likelihood, God is not talking Father, Son, and Holy Spirit to himself. This is like Micaiah, like Isaiah. This is God talking to his angelic host, saying, Let us make humanity in our image. I am the ultimate ruler. In the heavenly realm, I rule through you, so you're my vice rulers. In the earthly realm, I need some vice rulers 
like you, my vice rulers in the heavenly realm, let us make humanity in our image so that they may rule. The image of God finds its first manifestation in our our being created to rule. Let us make man in our... But notice the text doesn't say, so they made man. What's it say? So God made man. God is the creator of heaven and earth, including the angelic family. God is the maker of all things, standing apart from all things, not to be confused with anything in the creation, not even the magnanimous angelic host. Now, just as a sidebar here, when God creates humanity, that first man, Adam, the Bible calls Adam son of God. In Luke chapter 3, we're getting the genealogy of Jesus. From Joseph all the way back to the beginning, and in verse 38 we read, the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Adam is the son of God. What were the angelic beings called? The sons of God. God says, let us make humanity in our image. You are my heavenly sons, my heavenly family. Let's make an earthly family so that they can rule over the earthly realm like you rule in the heavenly realm. Trust me, we're getting to Christmas. One other slight sidebar. A verse that you've probably read before. Let's just pause for a second. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 to 15. Paul's praying and he says, For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. God is a family man. God has an angelic family, uh, and that angelic family, the sons of God, He rules through them in the heavenlies. And God has created us, humanity, as His human earthly family, so that we can rule over His earthly realm. As in heaven, so on earth, it makes sense, doesn't it? That the earth is reflecting heaven. The structure of God's governance and God's family on earth is designed to reflect that which is true of God's heavenly family. Now one more, okay, one and a half more for this Sunday. God wants to transform the whole earth into Eden. When God creates the earthly, visible realm. He has a vision. He has has a master plan. Remember how it starts? It's formless and void and darkness over the surface of the deep. And in chapter 2, God creates a special place, Eden. Eden is not the whole earth. Eden is only a little part of the earth. 
Eden is the garden of God. Eden is the mountain of God. And what God wants is for humanity that starts in Eden, right? God put us in Eden. God wants us to start in Eden and go and have dominion. Fill the earth, subdue the earth, have dominion over the earth, transform the whole earth into the Garden of Eden. Into a place where heaven and earth will meet. It's going to be a place where the angelic, invisible realm and the human, visible realm blend with God as supreme. Over This is God's big vision. If somebody says to you, what's God all about? What's God ultimately want? You say to them, God wants Eden. Oh, the Bible will also call it new creation, new heavens, new earth. But the Bible calls it Eden. God's vision is for Eden. Let's turn to a prophet. The prophet Ezekiel, chapter 28. Ezekiel, chapter 28. Oh, this is, a, this is a perplexing text. Is it talking about the fall of a human king, or is it talking about the fall of Satan? Yes, but that's way taking us afield for this morning. All I want to do is just read for you the language of Eden. In verse 13, you were in Eden. True of the serpent. You were in Eden, and notice what Eden is called, the garden of God. A place of abundant life. Every precious stone adorned you. Carnelian, chrysolite, and emerald, topaz, onyx, and jasper, lapis lazuli, turquoise, and beryl. Your settings and mountains were made of gold. On the day you were created, they were prepared. A place of abundant wealth. Eden. Abundance. Abundant life. And notice it says you were anointed as a guardian cherub, the angelic. For so I ordained you, for you were on the holy mountain of God. Mount Zion, right? Mount Sinai, right? Mount of Olives, right? Uh, The mountain, which is the closest place on the earthly realm that you can be, And get close to the heavenly realm. And so the mountain of God is the home of God. It's the place where God meets with his angelic host. It's the place where God meets with his heavenly family, with his earthly family. That's Eden. It's a garden. It's abundant life. It's a mountain. It's where heaven and earth intersect. What did Jesus teach us to pray? As in heaven, so on earth. God wants to transform the whole earth. That was his original plan. How cool. I have my heavenly family. I've created my earthly family. They're in heaven, the garden of God, the mountain of God. I've given them a charge. They're now going to go and they're going to transform the whole earth into Into Eden. Well, 6, 6, 1, because we're only going to start with this one. 
God will not let rebellion thwart his vision. There was rebellion. Turn to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. Now the serpent. Interesting. When, like in English, when Hebrew uses the definite article, the book, did you see the book on the table? That presumes, the presumes that it's a book that is known. Now the serpent just seems to come out of nowhere, right? But definite article, the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from the tree in the garden? And if we uh, drop down a little bit, uh, verse 6, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some of it and ate it. She also gave it to her husband who was with her and he ate it and the eyes of both of them were open and they realized that they were naked. There was rebellion in heaven. The serpent, this is not an ordinary snake. Uh, Not an ordinary snake. It's talking. This is one of the heavenly beings. But one of the heavenly beings, and catch this, because this ties in to Cor Deus Homo. One of the heavenly beings is embodied, not in human flesh, but in the form of a serpent. Have you ever asked yourself this question? Why was Eve not surprised when the snake talked to her? Have you ever thought about it? The serpent says... And Eve says, and the ser- they're just like having a cup of coffee and chatting. Right? Why was Eve not surprised? The answer is simple. Because Eve was in Eden. Eve was in the, in the garden of God. Eve was on the mountain of God. This is a place where the heavenly family and the human family intersected with each other. She was used to having heavenly beings around. It was no surprise to her. It was quite ordinary. Oh, but here is a heavenly being who is no longer content with God's plan because God's plan all based, is all based on the presumption. Remember what we said, that in the heavenly family, God is incomparably in charge of absolutely everything. All fear God. God fears no one. And this heavenly being said, I don't like that plan. I think I am the one who should be in charge. And he begins to usurp God's position. He begins to thwart God's plan so that he might become ultimate. By the way, there's going to be a time later on in the Gospels when he is going to have an encounter with Jesus and he's going to say to Jesus, see all of this stuff? Would you like to have it? I can give it to you. That was not fake news. 
That was not false advertising. He was the Lord of this present evil age. He could have given it to Jesus. Jesus knew that, but Jesus simply said, I don't need you to give it to me. I'm going to inherit the nations another way. The way that is in keeping with honoring my Father who is in heaven. And so we see that there was rebellion in heaven And there was rebellion on the earth. Now, on a beautiful Sunday morning like this, in a beautiful building like this, God in his grace and kindness gives us glimpses of Eden. In the beauty of relationships, in the beauty of health, in the beauty of prosperity and peace, God gives us just tastes of Eden. But this is not Eden. We're not there. You only have to look at the news to say, this is not God's vision. You only have to look at your own family relationships, at health and dysfunction in the body to say, this is not, this is not Eden. Then you know why Jesus said, when you pray, you've got to pray this way. As in heaven, so on earth. That God's heavenly kingdom would eventually come And God's vision for the earth and for humanity would be realized. Now, God will not let rebellion thwart his plan. There has been rebellion. God will make a way. You've got to come back next Sunday to find out what that way is. But have you ever watched the TV program... And at the end of the TV program, they say, stay tuned for, what do they call it? Previews of next week's episode. Okay, well, let me give you at least one preview of next week. It comes out of the book of Colossians, chapter 1, starting in verse 20, speaking of Christ. It says, he, Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, For by him all things were created. Where? In heaven and on earth. Visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace through his blood on the cross. That's cur deus homo. Why did God become man? 
Now, we can't just jump from where we are in Genesis to the good news of Advent. We've got to make our way through the Old Testament so that we get a better sense of why God finally said, if I want it done right, I've got to do it myself. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the, uh, the beauty of your word. Thank you for the beauty of who you are as ultimate in heaven and on earth. Thank you for your heavenly family. Thank you for your earthly family, for your vision of Eden. And uh, we're sorry that as part of Adam, we failed to bring Eden. We are thankful that you would not let our failure thwart your plan. But in the fullness of time, you sent the Lord Jesus, your Son and our Savior. Yes, your Son and our Savior, that he might bring heaven to earth. We give you our thanks, and we pray that as we reflect on these things in the Lord's Supper, that you would make your vision more and more a part of our vision, that we would understand more clearly why we are here and what you, have, what you would have us to do, that that prayer might one day be answered as in heaven so on earth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.